Guru Nation, welcome to episode 530 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, I interview Richard Gar. He's the CEO of Curative Biotechnology, CUBT. This is another one of those very popular microcap, actually penny stock, uh, from the internet. And usually I'm afraid of penny stocks and internet hype, but this one, the more you look under the hood, the more you realize there's just tons of potential. Of course, it's all potential at this point, um, but there's tons of potential, much more so than most uh, comparative companies in its class and market cap and size, etc. And also get to know Richard. I mean, this is a good person to get to know. His LinkedIn uh, will be in the show notes. So let me know what you think about this one. Again, not not financial advice by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in the show notes, link uh, YouTube Premium. Maybe you want to be a YouTube Premium member. It's ten bucks a month. You get a monthly Zoom call. You get early access to videos. You get some exclusive, just member videos. Usually, how to build your career or business using social media. Things that are not so much related to clinical research, but still are because look. We, we're alive, we're living on this planet, everything's connected at some point, but it may just be just outside the scope of what my channel is, but for the hardcore fans who want to learn more about improving their businesses, careers, etc., I do post weekly videos and then a monthly Zoom call and, like I said, early access to a bunch of the videos as well. So check that out. I also have a lot of cool stuff planned for that in the future. Uh, also in the show notes, CRA Academy, CRC Academy. Those are alive and well. I really want to thank you guys for helping us grow those two academies. We are making so much progress. We are changing lives with those courses. I've been very pleased with the results and with you, the listeners, helping spread the word. So thank you so much. Also, if you need help starting a site, text me 949-415-6256. Or maybe you already have a site and you need help getting studies. Same thing, text me 949-415-6256. I'd appreciate if you subscribed, liked, comment, shared, rated it. And let me know what you think. Richard Gar, Curative Biotechnologies. Take care. Hello, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode. This is, uh, you know, we do these biotech ones from time to time, and then we do it through our other channel, the Clinical Research Circle. And we've got, uh, we've got a really special company here, one that really garners the excitement and enthusiasm of, of the interwebs and of social media at large, and that's Curative Biotech. And they've, I mean, they're like a really small market cap company. We happen to have the CEO, Richard Gar on, and we're going to talk a little bit about Richard's background. He's CEO and general counsel at Curative Biotech, but he's got a really interesting background, really experienced background uh, in the life sciences industry. We wanted to focus a little bit on that because it's, it's not too often that we get to actually see and profile the, the CEOs of some of these companies. So we're gonna get into a little bit of Richard's career, a little bit of his background, and then we're also going to uh, discuss, obviously, Curative Biotech. They've got a lot of exciting stuff in the pipelines. Myself, Chris, Monica, we've all done a good amount of homework uh, on the background of this company, what's in the pipeline. We haven't done as good homework as some of you guys on the internet. This is an unbelievable level of due diligence. People have time to just to go deep, I mean, deep into these companies. But thank you, guys. And we're going to get into some of the audience questions, viewer questions. And so thank you, Richard, very much for coming on. How are you doing today? It's fine. Thank you for having me. Can we get into, like, just can you give us, like, maybe a three-minute summary of your career so far? Sure. Shorter than three minutes, hopefully. <laughs> Um, so, so for almost 20 years, I was at 17, actually, I was the president CEO and one of the founders of NeuralSTEM, which was a human neural stem cell company that started on the old Amex, went to the New York Stock Exchange, Amair, they call it, I think, and then NASDAQ. Um, and 
Uh, I started that company with the founding scientist, Dr. Carl Joe. We took the technology out of NIH, um, which is a pattern that you'll see repeated in this company. Uh, and um, we were treating through transplantation uh, degenerative nerve diseases, ALS, spinal cord injury, stroke. We also had a small molecule drug development program based on screening against the physiologically relevant human neural stem cells. And we developed uh, first-in-class drugs to treat um, depression and cognitive deficits in various diseases. Uh, probably about five years ago, um, my son, who's always been a brain tumor patient, developed a, a new series of, of problems. And so I left neural stem. Um, and then about a year, year and a half ago, we had a remarkable uh, recovery and he's doing great, knock on wood. Um, and so I thought it was time to go back to work. Um, I had met um, Paul Michaels, who's the chairman of our company, a very successful biotech entrepreneur uh, down in Florida. And uh, we decided with um, Michael Grace and Ron Borden's two PhDs who spent, I think between them at least 50 years at places like Shearing Plow and Bristol Myers Squibb, who are also looking to kind of do something. Um, we got together and decided that we had enough experience between us to create a therapeutics company, but we all wanted to do something very different, right? So, so you might notice that the model for this company is very different than a typical biotech startup, which all of us have been part of and then all the way through, you know, large company status. So the point here was to create a company that would mitigate the risks that are typically involved in a startup therapeutic company. And so one of the big risks is almost every company, and my first company was the same way, is based on a single technology or a single platform. It might be a cascade that someone's discovered. It could be a protein. And there might be various uses, but it's a single technology, right? And so no matter how many applications there are, if there's a failure somewhere, they all fail. So between us, we had a broad enough experience in almost every area you could think of, you know, from gastrointestinal to neurology to from small molecules and peptides to cell therapy and gene therapy, that we weren't restricted in looking for programs to bring in. Um, the second area that we wanted to do to mitigate risk was we were only interested in programs that had what we call inflection points that will create real value within a two-year window. So the typical startup, right? You're, you get something early, you're five years before you can have a clinical trial, the patent is running. So we're looking for things that, again, because of our joint experience, we could find a way to create a serious inflection point in a two-year window, mm -hmm. right? And then the third major part of trying to mitigate against risk. So typically when you start a company, and I've, I've done this before, right? You have your plans and, and you're expanding all the time, right? You eat up capital because you have to expand to be able to get to the next step. So we decided that we would also only do programs where we could outsource all of the infrastructure that we could all of us having literally worldwide experience in you know, handling large multi-vendor tasks. And that's kind of our, our model. And then the final point was, we're not built to commercialize these programs, right? We might, we reserve the right to do that. But basically our model is find something that people don't get why there's value, use our experience to create this inflection point and then get it out the door, license it, sell it to a larger company, partner it that has the resources and the appetite to take it through, you know, launch and commercialization. And so that, that was the genesis. We decided that the best vehicle for that was to buy an existing company. We bought this OTC markets company. I think at the time it was called Connectix. And you go through the process of cleaning it up. It was not a shell. That's a very important thing to understand. But it was, 
not a fully operating company at the time. And so um, we took control of that and cleaned up, you know, whatever we could, which was everything. We are now, this was a pink sheet um, company. Um, we hired a PCAOB auditor, right, which is what you need, you know, to file a Form 10, which we'll be filing soon with the SEC to become fully SEC reporting. We're currently pink current information, which is why so many people know so much about us. It's basically very similar to the SEC reporting. It's just not through the SEC. It's directly through the, the OTC markets. They have a, a vehicle for that. So the idea again was to create this company, bring in product into it, move them through, hit these inflection points, become fully SEC reporting, right? And then I think that's one of the reasons that you see everybody knows so much about us. We're very transparent, right? Mm -hmm. Everything's out there. And that's, that's kind of the way we think that we're growing the shareholder base. So in regards to uh, uh, CTYX, I, um, I believe that's Connectix. Yeah. What, what was the reason for that company in particular? Why not, I guess, just go on your own with a new company? Uh, why well, why uh, do that? They, they had a shareholder base. Um, one of our founders, uh, Barry Ginsburg, Dr. Ginsburg, was... Um, involved with that company. He was not on the board, but he was a shareholder. So he knew of the status of the vehicle and he knew the then CEO and he thought it would be, you know, a good, good place and a good way to get control of the vehicle. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you for that. And uh, you guys are pursuing, I love it because the diversification is fantastic, especially in, you don't see that in such a small cap biotech where you have three completely different things you're pursuing. You have eye disease, rabies, and brain cancer. What drives your decisions in deciding what rare disease to pursue? I mean, sure. how do these things, they're, they're unrelated, right? How do they all yeah. come, come together at okay. once? So the, the primary mover here at the beginning was we've all had a lot of experience dealing with large pharma, large biotech, and NIH. And after you know decades of that, you're aware of lots of programs that are always floating around these places that fall out of favor for one reason or another. Not because of the science, right? It could be because they lose an internal champion. It because somebody leaves and goes to California from Washington, and you know whatever it is, right? And so I think we probably went through literally a thousand available opportunities from NIH, from all the different institutes, and tried to find you know the ones that we thought fit our model. Again, get to an inflection point soon, right? Serious diseases. Um, it, it's hard, but, but we went through them and at the National Cancer Institute, we found the CD56 monoclonal antibody. It's the first humanized CD56 monoclonal. And they had uh, tried to treat um, neuroblastoma with this by, by combining it with this new class of drugs, the PBD drugs, which are unbelievably potent, right? A hundred to a thousand times more potent than chemotherapy. But potent in biotech is just another word for toxic, right? right because potency right. is kill the cell, right? Kill the cancer. Right. And so um, it was just sitting there because a lot of the big farmers are trying to figure out how to use this. But systemically, once that stuff gets in you, right, the CD56 monoclonal antibody is ubiquitous. It's all over in lots of different places. In my earlier incarnation at Neurostem, we had the similar problem to treat spinal cord injury and ALS by delivering human neural stem cells directly to very specific points inside the spinal cord. It had never been done before, right, inside the, the white matter, the gray matter of the spinal. And our surgeon, uh, Nick Bolas from Emory, who had developed this technology at the Cleveland Clinic, figured out a way how to focally get the cells in. So I called Nick and I said, look, is it possible to figure out a way to get this monoclonal antibody with this PBD warhead 
into the brain, directly into the tumor. So you don't get the systemic toxicity. And he came back after a while and said, yes, I think there is a way to do it. And we are now working on that. But that was the genesis of this program. That's why it was sort of available for us to take, right? This is a unique approach to getting this delivered focally um, to treat uh, brain cancer, solid tumor brain cancer. Um, we then went, so the NEI, National Eye Institute, also has a trove of you know, IP that's available to license. And again, as I was looking through it, my background with neural stem, right, I'm intimately familiar with how valuable screening against physiologically relevant human cell-derived assays are. That's how we discovered 189, it's how we discovered our, our drugs. Big Pharma does not like that, typically because screening against cells is too information rich. They like to do things where they can put, you know, 10,000, you know, wells at a time, high throughput, and they want one answer. Are we binding with this or are we not? They don't like to do information rich screening. They consider that earlier work or prior work. So the uh, Dr. Kapil Bharti at NEI, his actual uh, passion and specialty was growing RPE cells, retinal epithelial cells in the back of the eye from IPS, induced pluripotent stem cells. So you can take a skin cell from a patient and grow these things up and push them backwards in time and then push them forward to become sort of any cell you want. You can't really transplant them because you're messing with the cell's reproductive mechanisms, but you get pretty close to physiologically relevant cells. And he had created RPE cells from patients with various genetic eye diseases. That's what they do at NEIs, try and study the basic science behind this. And uh, it was pretty clear to me that that's really valuable information mm -hmm. when you screen against that. And one of the things he had done was put lots of different drugs, but metformin was one of them on the RPE cells. And looking at the various mechanisms of action involved in these diseases, he saw a strong impact. Now he went down that path because there are about half a dozen very large meta-studies from people like Kaiser Permanente and things like that, where they just went back and looked at, say, 5,000 patients over 15 years that had diabetes, right, who took metformin. And then they looked to see when did they develop their macular degeneration, age-related macular degeneration? And there seemed to be about a two to two and a half year lag, right? Now, again, this is not causation, it's just correlation, right? But that's what gave him the impetus to push down this path and look further at the mechanisms of action involved. And again, then he had this unique window on those, right, through his cells. Um, and he came up with this. He filed the patents at NIH um, through NEI. We actually, when I saw this, we actually licensed it before it became, when it was still a provisional patent. It was provisional in the U.S. and they had also filed the PCT. And I should mention another part of our model is we're only interested in things with sustainable, serious IP, right, worldwide serious, sustainable IP. So again, this fit all of the, checked all the boxes in our model. Um, and I negotiated the license with NEI. And that's how we ended up with that one. Wow. The rabies drug's a little different. Um, so IMT504 is basically, it's a ODN, and I'm not gonna mispronounce it by trying to tell you what that means. <laughs> but, but basically it's super, soups up your immune system. And the biotech company that had been working with this, Mid-Atlantic Biotherapeutics, was, and still is, trying to use it to treat cancer and as an adjuvant to treat um, COVID. But earlier on, they had done some groundbreaking work in late-stage rabies. So you don't hear about rabies much in the U.S. because maybe five people a year die in the US, right? If you get bit, you go to the hospital, you get the shots, the shots are incredibly effective, or you get them before you travel, 
right? And if you get bit, you don't get it. But for people who get rabies and don't have the shots, once you get past this certain window, it can be weeks, it could be a few months, but it's pretty short, you die. Nobody survives. And in countries like India and Pakistan and Malaysia and all over the rest of the world, where people don't have access, right? Easy access to modern medicine, a lot of people die. Um, they had, I think, compelling animal data. And this is one of the few diseases where the animal model is just like the human model. Animals get rabies, you can give them the shots or they die right, where the animals can survive. And there's nothing else that I'd ever seen where animals survived. So we licensed that. And again, in terms of our model, we licensed that because the inflection point there is the, um, the FDA's program, right, for priority review vouchers. Right. So only three years ago, rabies was added to the list of about 14 tropical diseases that the FDA provides these vouchers for, and they sell from anywhere between 80 to $120 million, right? So the point there is they want people to develop drugs for diseases that aren't going to be financially profitable um, because of the size of the population or whatever. And then you can sell this voucher to somebody like Novartis or Glaxo that right. has a billion dollar a year drug. So they're saving $100 million a month. And if you get six months off the review time, right? It's right. $600. So you can do the math, right? They so can't. I have a, I actually have a question about the PRV. So what, can you go through a little bit of the steps needed to secure this uh, and so, how long it typically takes? So a PRV, you have to have, you have to finish your pivotal trial and have marketing approval. Okay. Um, and there's a few other things It has to be on the list. And it can't be approved for any indication anywhere in the world, right? So in other words, you can't take a drug that's been approved in Turkey for something and get it approved here for something else that meets the PRV and get the PRV. So those are the basic you know, points of this. It has to be novel and, and important. Um, now, again, our model, which is a two-year inflection point, right? The thing about rabies is because the patients always die. If you don't get treated in time, you always die. There's no gray area. There's no, not gonna be any confusion in the data. You know, it's an absolute diagnosis, right? You, you know someone has rabies, there's a test, you can tell they had rabies. You can tell if they survive or they don't. And I believe that once we show, start to show survival in patients, we'll be able to go to the FDA. I think our, our data monitoring uh, independent data monitoring group will say, you have to stop the trial. You have to go to the FDA. You have to ask for accelerated approval because we can't let these people continue to die just because we're waiting for the trial. We don't oh. know that that will happen. Right. But, but in my experience, that's the kind of thing where you can do that. So I'm and curious yeah. when you, when you go to the FDA, um, how would a study be designed here in America when you don't really have access to patients that will have rabies? How, how would that study be designed? The, the study is designed the way you design any study, right? To meet all of the FDA guidelines. Sure. Um, and then we have centers, and again, we don't have signed agreements yet, so I can't announce them. We have centers in places where they have lots of patients, unfortunately. And, you know- With rabies? Yes. So, really, here in America? No, not in America. No, that's what I'm asking in America. So is the FDA going to consider data from, from other countries? Okay. So the, the point with the FDA is it's the quality of the data, right? And their rules and regulations and procedures to a great degree define the quality, as you guys know, right? If you check all the boxes, you follow all their rules, you meet all of the QC and everything else, then it doesn't matter where you do the trial, right? As long as the ethics... Things check and everything else checks. So we will do all that. This trial will have the same protocols if we were doing it in the U.S., right? Only we're going to be doing it in a place where, unfortunately, you know, these people walk out of the jungle with their kids and they say, well, we thought they were sick from something else, but now it's been, you know, six weeks and they're foaming at the mouth and there's nothing they can do for them. And this happens 30 times a week in very Wow. Right? So, so um... horrible. 
So is there, I'm assuming there's a test to see if somebody has rabies, correct? There's an absolute diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis by omission. It's not a guess. Yes. It's a validated test. So all the patients will know actually have rabies. And And did this drug go through phase one or? So it's been in humans. I won't say it's been through phase one, but it has been in humans um, to treat cancer. Okay which was a program that was stopped and it was in Argentina, which is where this uh, drug was licensed from. So I assume you're designing a phase two study to be ran in. in uh, it's really a, I, I would think of it as an adaptive. Phase one, two. One, two, three, okay. almost, right? So maybe we will think of in terms of a hundred patients total, right? But there's no healthy volunteers getting this. There's already human data and safety data from the, the cancer drug trials. But this is a, um, you know, the only thing that will change is there might be different doses because we d- did see different dose responses in the animal tests. So that there might be an escalating dose, which is why it's an adaptive one too. Uh-huh. But again, no one survives. My guess is once you've treated 12 patients and you've shown... You know, 11 survived. survived. You're, you're great. The, in, the, the independent data monitoring board is going to say, you got to stop the trial and go to the FDA. Now, they could say no, do more, right? We're not convinced. And, but that's why we'll be recruiting 100 patients and you know, planning as if we had to go further. But I think for us, it's a year to get the drug manufactured and to get the trial set up, and then six months to do the recruiting and treatment, and another six months to finish the data. So we're in our two-year window to get to that inflection point. I see. And the inflection point would be to have the study complete in, in the case of rabies? For this one, the inflection point is marketing approval. Okay, I got you. Because that's what you need to get the PRV. Okay. And for, that makes sense, for the metformin, because this is the one where yeah, most of the social media is uh, interested yeah. in. Uh, when, when do you expect to have the phase one, two trials uh, complete? So, uh, I think I have said publicly that our goal is to have the IND filed to treat age-related macular degeneration by the end of this calendar year. Um, so as it turns out, metformin we're, we are re- reformulating it into an eye drop, right? So those other studies I talked about, we can't recruit 5,000 patients, right? To reach a statistical right. significance, okay? Right. And, and nobody knows, you know, who took how much and things like that. What's clear is when you can put it directly on the eye, right? And get it directly to the cells you have to get it to, it's going to be much more effective at, at even much smaller doses. So... Um, there are multiple retinal degenerative diseases that all have similar symptoms and similar etiology. Um, We're starting with dry uh, AMD here in the U.S., for which there's no treatment, uh, and wet AMD. Um, And then Stargardt's is a a very small orphan disease, which um, Dr. Barty has also worked on. Um, Believe it or not, um, diabetic retinopathy uh, is a a serious disease that also, now there's little different issues there because those patients are taking metformin. So the the pre, the toxicity studies, right? And the dosing studies are, are very different for that. But our, our main focus for metformin, the first one is the AMD, uh, I'm sorry, the macular degeneration, age-related. Um, that is probably, and I say probably because, again, we haven't signed a contract, right? But that's probably going to be a phase one slash two because, so this is eligible for, again, this goes to our inflection point model, right? This drug is eligible for 505B2, um, right, reformulation sort of accelerated pathway with the FDA. Right. Um, But typically what you get there is that's if you've reformulated a drug and you're giving it to somebody because it's easier or lasts longer, right? But it's usually for the same indication. Here, we're reformulating it, but we're giving it to somebody for a totally different indication, 
right? Gotcha. So metformin is given to diabetics. It's not given to people with, with eye diseases. And so we don't know until we get in there and start talking to them in detail, you know, how much more than the usual 505 B2 mm. they're going to ask for. I see. There is literally millions of patients and decades of safety data on metformin. Right. So we may have to do a little more dosing escalation in the trials, but it's really not hard to figure out how much metformin is getting to the back of the eye and then how much is leaking, if any, into the system. And is that more than patients should be getting? That's right. the toxicity issue there. Is um, there is there a precedent? I mean, I know not for metformin, but under the 505B2 pathway for repurposing drugs for completely different indications. So do you, sure. I'm sure you guys studied this, but what's the FDA's typical response? Is the uh, dose escalating? Same thing. It yeah. is show us. So the, the thing about 505B2 is it's not magic, okay? Hmm. What it does is it allows you to use the reference drugs safety data, okay? And so that is where the magic is because that saves you thousands of thousands of patients and years of development, right, and, and cost. It essentially allows uh, you to skip phase one, correct? Well, you know, you can, again, companies will use it in different ways depending on what they want to learn from a trial. So, right, we don't think of phase one as just a step and then phase two is a step. Each phase of these clinical trials is giving you information, right? So the question is, what information do you need to know? In our first trial, whatever we call it, the information we want to be able to get is obviously that it's safe. And we should know that in advance because we know how much metformin people can take and how much will be getting through. We're really just confirming that with these patients. And then secondly, is enough of it permeating the outside of the eye and getting to the back of the, right, where the RPE cells are, okay? And so that really can only be identified by seeing improvement, right? Either delaying the onset of the macular degeneration and seeing levels of acuity improve, right? And so those are the things we look for in a trial. So each trial is designed to build to getting that information and getting it at the scale that the FDA will require for an ultimate approval. Um, again, you know, metformin, uh, there's so much information on that drug out there in terms of safety systemically, right? Once it gets into people that I don't think it's really going to be an issue, um, but you still have to do the studies. You have to do the preclinical, you know, tox animals and everything else. Um, but we, we don't expect there to be any issues there. And then it's a question of what do we, what is the recruiting size we need to show efficacy, right? The standards for showing efficacy, we don't have to make them up. Right? Everybody knows how you measure acuity and everybody knows how you measure you know, when you're supposed to get it, when you'd expect people to get it. So it's just a powering question right, of getting the right number of patients in, getting the right number of centers, um, designing the trial and, and getting it done. And I think, again, once we show that it's you know, confirmed that it's safe and show that there is clearly signs of efficacy as there have been in the animal studies and the in vitro studies at the mechanism of action level. Um, again, with our model, I think bringing in a large pharma or biotech partner is not going to be an issue. Right? These I are huge markets, unmet medical needs worldwide. We have worldwide IP um, that's you know in the process. And again, because this just converted from a provisional to a complete a patent in the U.S. and the PCT was filed at the same time, the patent life of this drug, if these patents are approved, that it'll have its entire patent life ahead of it, right? So the value of a drug, regardless of how good it is, right, to a small biotech company is highly correlated to the length and value of the intellectual property, right? No big pharma is going to do a deal with you if they can just take it, right? <laughs> So uh, that's right. the reality, right? And Absolutely. so this has its full patent life ahead of it. So it has maximum value. It's very good IP and um, it's worldwide. So yeah, I think I, I can see why our shareholders have focused on metformin. It's our first, we've actually focused as much of our resources as we can 
on this to make sure we get that IND filed towards the end of this calendar year and get, get that trial started. So what, what would be the, um, I don't know how to phrase this question, but what are you looking at? Is it, obviously it's not a cure, it's a delay, but will it be somebody that's that's developing some sort of eye issue in which they take yeah, this so indefinitely? It's different for different indications and it's different at different time points. So ideally, if uh, Dr. Barty is right, and we obviously believe he is, if you could get an age-related macular degeneration patient early enough before the disease sets in, you could put it off indefinitely. Mm. Right? So what happens in this disease is the RPE level right, gets disrupted for various reasons, age. So it's called age-related because basically we rust from the inside out. Right. And so nice. that Ten, starts to come apart and what's underneath it are these blood vessels and they start to pop through where they shouldn't be. And then they're leaking because the vasculature is not right. And that causes all kinds of problems. Then there's all sorts of downstream problems that the RP cells aren't producing the, you know, other things they do to help clean up the area. Um, what this drug does, we believe, when we can put it in an eye drop directly on your eye, is that it just makes, it's a NOx4 inhibitor, what they call it. So, so that's an antioxidant almost, right? It prevents rust. Now, it does a lot of other things, but that's its, one of its primary mechanisms of action, all right? And because of that, if you can get it in early enough, you can stop that process, right? And, and so, yes, Statistically speaking, you could probably get it approved by just showing that you're delaying the onset of the disease by some you know, meaningful time point. Um, you could also stop the downslope of the disease. And so that's not a cure, but if you can maintain the acuity level of a patient without it going down, right? I think, I don't know, they used to judge it by, do you lose more than three lines on the eye chart in a year? Right? I think there, it's more specific than that now, but that's the kind of thing you're looking at in terms of preserving vision or losing vision. Um, now, there are diseases like Stargardt's that have these same problems, but they come from a genetic problem, right? There's, a, there's an actual gene that's the problem. Um, so there we're only treating the symptoms. We would not be treating the actual disease. But for age-related macular degeneration, we're not just treating the symptoms. We're actually trying to prevent the disease. And so the question is, how do you identify these patients early enough, right? So great question. The reality is you're only going to identify them once they've been diagnosed, okay? And people are diagnosed at all kinds of different time points, right, on the on the thing. And there are tests now where you can actually see maybe a year before it even manifests itself. But again, who, who goes in for those tests, right? We don't know. So we'll be treating, you know, probably early to mid stage dry macular degeneration patients in this trial, right? And that's based on math from when they're diagnosed and then from what their symptoms are. Now, probably 10% of those patients turn into wet AMD patients. We believe we can also treat that. Um, that trial will probably not be done in the US. Um, we are talking to a large eye hospital in India about doing a trial there. Um, you know, the problem is the COVID is so bad in India that nobody's doing anything right now. So it's hard to say when that would start. So the dry will be ahead of the wet at this point. Um, the other issue with the wet is that there are treatments. It's the shot, literally shots into the eye. They started about every three months and sometimes they go down to every two months. Obviously patients hate it, but, but it works, it helps. And so people would obviously much rather take an eye drop than a shot. But oh, absolutely. It's not ethical for a physician to withhold the shot from a patient who's been diagnosed. So we'd have to do the trial as a adjuvant first, right, with it, and then to tease out how much of it 
the improvement is our eye drop versus there. So maybe what will happen is that when we need the shots every six months instead of every two months, right? Something like that. But to tease that out would require a very large uh, sample, right? Population and a very long look, right? And we're not built for that. We're built for finding out if it works, right? And, and moving it out the door. So that's again, sort of informs what we go after when. As, as, yeah, as far as the inflection point is concerned. So I'm fascinated by this because most, a lot of biotechs, you know, they, they get founded because of there's a scientist very passionate about a particular uh, area that they've been researching. For you guys, it's completely built on this model. Uh, I've, I've been reading something about SOAR, Science Opportunity yes. Acceleration Rare Disease. Is this the Absolutely. model that you're talking about? We had a sort of a PR person who came up with that. It's in there, but it, it's actually not so meaningless, right? Because the, the heart of this company is that model, right? There's, there's lots of great science out there, lots of great scientists, right? Yes. And, and that model, that SOAR, right, really is at the heart of what we do as a company. Yeah. So you know, I, know, I know Monica has a related question. I'm going to let her yeah. ask it. But uh, for a company like this, for a biotech like this, to, to operate, to, to thrive under this model, it really depends on, I'm assuming, a few key people doing all this homework. I mean, this yes. information doesn't just fall out of the sky and hit you on the head. No. Who's, who's the person or group of people? Was that you? I'm assuming you had a large role in this. Or were there other people? There, we have a, a clinical and scientific advisory board, and you can go on our website um, and you can see it. Uh, Ron Borden and Mike, Michael Grace, Dr. Grace is the chairman, right? Again, you know, 30 years in big pharma, Bristol-Myers Squibb, all these places. Um, Ron Borden is the same thing. Uh, Dr. Demeter, I'm going to mispronounce his name. <laughs> Demetra, who's the it. head of the antibody cancer program at Pitt. He was at NIH. He was the guy who discovered the CD56 uh, human monoclonal, has wow. joined our advisory board also. Kapil Barty from the NEI um, at NIH has also joined our board. So you have to understand having scientists is one thing, right? But having the inventors of the technology is a completely different thing. So in my prior life at NeuralSTEM, we had the inventor of human neural stem cells. And he was working every day, all day on trying to commercialize that. Right, you can have people in your advisory board, great people, right? But they have limited attention span, right? They're doing a billion other things, and these guys are too, right? But they're heavily, heavily vested in their own technology, and that's why they joined our board in addition to just you know licensing us the stuff to make sure that it actually works. So when you talk to an inventor, right? When you license something, all you see is what's in the patent, what they did. You don't know what they didn't do. You don't know what they tried that failed, right? right. And I've been there and I failed many times, right? You can walk down that path saying, oh, this makes sense, right? And then it turns out they tried that three years ago and it didn't work, right? And so having these guys is also the key, as you say, a core group of people um, is, is so key to this model. You couldn't do this just bringing these things in, right? You need to have the people who know what all the wrong turns are, right? What all the blind alleys are. So that when you start designing the path forward, you, you optimize, right, your time and, and resources. And so it was very key for us to be able to get their buy-in and, and their involvement. And then again, yes, uh, between myself and um, Mike and Ron and Paul and uh, Demeter and, um, Nick Bolas at Emory and um, a couple other people, we've all managed large projects and large groups worldwide mm -hmm. of clinical trials and resources. And so being able to set up this kind of near virtual model, um, you know, I won't say it's second nature because it, 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 it's difficult, but the world of Zoom, right? And expectations that you're only going to talk online instead of traveling, right? And things right. like that have actually made this easier. Yeah, you could do more. 
that uh, brings me to the next question. That Monica has a one that's very much related to what you just yeah. said. <laughs> are you are you done with new indicate like new things to look at, or are these are these three enough? Or are you guys continuously looking so, for things to fit the, the model? model? Is Gen One, Gen Two, Gen Three, Gen Four? Right. This is a model that we think is sustainable. Right. So again, the goal is acquire at advantageous terms, get to the inflection point, get it out the door to a partner that has the appetite and the resources to commercialize. Okay. And as we do that, we bring more in. So we are always, um, you know, if you talk to anybody in business development at a biotech company, even a conventional biotech company, their time is always split between trying to find partners for what they have and trying to bring new stuff in. Right. And big pharma, they have different people doing those, right? Those things are separated. But at most companies, it's the same business development people that split their time doing both. And we're no different, right? So, so we are always talking to people about what's our Gen 2, what's our Gen 3. Um, you know, as the model evolves, we may find that there's something else we should have looked for or that we were right and that we should only look for this thing. Right. I mean, this is a, mm -hmm. an iterative process. Um, but I, I, again, you know, we all have decades of experience. We've all seen programs that have worked, programs that have failed. So it, it's, um, I'm sorry, do you have a question? Yeah, Monica has got a question. Yes. I, I've got to stop <laughs> interviewing CEOs because I get too excited <laughs> with what you guys say. I want to go buy all these stocks. Monica, I know you have a good question. Yes. Uh, hi, Richard. Hi, Monica. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. So my question is, how a lawyer ended up in research? Because I was reading your background, and and, and I know you're a lawyer that you started your uh, a company. You're one of the we're one of the co-founders or of a noodle noodle steam uh, since 1996. So it seems like basically your whole your whole career has been in research. Um, yeah, so I'm much older than you think. Um, <laughs> my whole career was not. Uh, I was an attorney. Um, I did medical malpractice litigation uh, as well as actually some real estate development. But in the mid 90s, my son was sick and I, I actually met, uh, he became friends with the son of Dr. Carl Joe who invented neural stem cells at NIH. And I don't live 10 minutes from NIH. And we became friends and, and we decided, you know, at the time his technology was based on very controversial human embryonic cell related technology. Um, and so he didn't think the government was gonna fund it. So we decided to take it out of NIH, which is where I had my first experience <laughs> licensing something from NIH. Um, and then just go raise the money and develop it as a company. Uh, and so since the mid nineties, I, I have been strictly in this uh, field. Um, and you know, biotech is, is addictive. Um, it's great to be thinking you're doing something that can you know, help people. And uh, I've had the great fortune to work with the inventors of the technology always that we've worked on. So you're talking to guys who know literally more than anyone else in the world about what you're talking to, right? And that's that in itself is a huge advantage, right? I mean, there's lots of brilliant PhDs out there, but there's only one inventor of each of these technologies. And they're the guys you want to be working with. So that's what I've tried to stick with. Wow. I mean, that's, I can tell the passion. Yeah, I can tell the passion. You know, it's like, this is why we like to interview the CEOs, founders, co-founders, because there's always something more than just the business. And I've noticed that trend for a lot of these successful biotech. So um, I appreciate you sharing that, especially the backstory in regards to your son and how that definitely played a, a pivotal role in you getting into biotech. I think that's a powerful, powerful story. If you have time, we do have some questions from the community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Richard. Okay, feel free. Don't blame me for these questions. Okay, no, no. I'm just, I'm They're just a messenger. Better than you think. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay, so why not? Oh, we'll just get into it. Speed round. 
why not press release the recent six hundred thousand dollar financing deal? Uh, we did report it. Um, you know, press releases to me are important, but they they are public relations. This was not a public relations item, right? This was just a fact. That's what we do. We put out the facts and we raise the money and we put it in. Once we file the form 10, it'll be an 8K. Here it was just a report to OTC markets, but that's not a press release worthy item. I like that. I like that, Richard. You're part of the new generation. You don't care so much about press release. You come on YouTube and 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 say what you got to say. I respect that. Much respect for that. We'll see. That, that's yeah. the new that's the next decade this is what it's gonna be uh <laughs> number two plus it's an invitation to come back richard I gotta, <laughs> all right number two is the company working on any other financing and if so does that involve investment banks so the answer is yes biotech companies are like cars they need fuel and our fuel is money right Nobody works for free. You can't do all this work without paying. The they don't. <laughs> uh, we have not at this point retained an investment banker. Uh, we've been approached by many. Um, when the time is right and we found the right fit, we most likely will do that. I have to also here just refer everyone to the website to the um, forward-looking statements, little disclaimer because you got me talking about forward-looking statements now. And I'm not going to hold up a copy of it, but please go to the website, read that, and take that as written. Okay, but so the answer is yes, we, we will be raising money, um, but I, I can't say when or you know anything more about it than that. Yeah, all these rules around communications are ridiculous. Um, number three, uh, is the company open to any mergers and acquisitions? I think you answered that uh, you know, more or less. We're agnostic. The, the point is to get these drugs to people because they can yeah. help them. Whatever the best path is, um, that's the path we will take. This is a good one. So what's what's been the biggest roadblock so far when it comes to the rabies or or, or just any of the three? Um... Oh, the, the real issue out in the real world today is COVID. So everybody who has manufacturing facilities anywhere in the world that can be applied to the COVID vaccines or the glassware that they go in or the needle, whatever it is, right? All of those resources are completely 100% booked, right? And the governments are paying whatever those people are asking. So that is the biggest roadblock. There's right now for us a six month um, window, waiting window to be able to start manufacturing the rabies drug, right? When that six months is up, who knows whether or not that'll still be the, right, the case and they'll be freed up or not. This new Delta variant could change everything or it may not. Yeah. The vaccines are good against it. That's the single biggest unknown. Uh, same with clinical trials. In India, you can't start a clinical trial on anything else right? They don't want people in the hospital. They don't want doctors to want to be in the hospitals, right? That in the U.S., we're starting to get back to normal. I will tell you, the FDA is not doing meetings. They're not even doing Zoom calls. You just have to submit everything in writing with a briefing book. If it's not COVID-related, um, you, you can't even get in to talk to them. So wow. that's different. We'll see how much of a roadblock it ends up being. Yeah, great, great answer. I think that's uh, you know, investors often like they don't see the whole picture. They don't they don't know the context of this. They just look at uh, you know everything objectively. Uh, number five, I guess I guess we kind of answered this. Will the company increase their investor relations and awareness? I would say yes. The YouTube. This is what YouTube's for. We're here. Also, Steve Fizik. <laughs> Steve is on this. I know. Listening. Anybody that has questions for investor relations can email investor relations at. Um, curative biotechnology and, and Steve will answer. I think I understand what this acronym means, but um, I understand the first three letters. Hopefully you understand all five. When is the goal for uplist or at least OTC QB status? Yes. Yeah, so that's actually a great question. Um, our plan, as I said, we are, we are undergoing and just about finished with our PCAOB audit, which is required to uplist uh, either to an exchange or to QB. Um, so our plan is as soon as we have the audit completed, 
we will file a form 10, which makes us completely SEC reporting. And that, along with our existing shareholder base and price, will qualify us, I believe, um, automatically right now for QB, for OTC QB. But the whole point of that is that it, there's more information available. And the fact that we're filing a form 10, which makes this completely SEC reporting, right, accomplishes the same thing. But, but that I think is, is a fairly imminent uh, process. Um, and again, there's you know, no telling exactly when the audit will be finished, but we expect it to be done soon. We expect to file the form 10 soon. The SEC typically takes 30 to 45 days to review those things, but you never know, could be longer, could be shorter. And once that's all done, we should be eligible to uplist wherever it is we want to go to. Okay. Uh, one more, uh, and no details required, just yes or no. So far, have any big pharma approached you yet? We can't talk about that. Okay. Um, there's no third option, Dan, yeah. other than yes or no. That's right. These guys are these guys are smart. They put only like two choices when there's actually three. That's right. I have another question, and I don't know if you can answer this just yet. But uh, when thinking about the commercialization of that drug, like for example, for the rabies, that is obviously in countries that don't have much access to, let's say, the vaccine. Right. How's that going to work? So, so that obviously that's an issue, not just for that, but for the metformin drug also, right? And so there are lots of places around the world where people don't have access to Lucentis or ILEA, right? The shots for wet macular degeneration. Um, and so we're looking at all of that. Um, you know, the WHO is some, somebody that we'll probably want to work with. We have a clinical trial set up, right? We have the infrastructure set up to do this trial in places that unfortunately do see lots of these patients. In terms of once it becomes approved, the distribution of that, um, that's hard to, hard to predict right now, but it's not a model we have to invent. There's lots of drugs and lots of vaccines that are given out throughout the world, right? Especially now after COVID, there's been an incredible amount of infrastructure created by nonprofits, right, and, and organizations to literally get vaccines and shots to people who don't normally have access, right, to, to quality medicine. So from that point of view, I think our timing might be pretty good and we, we might, um, it's horrible to say that it, there's a good outcome from this, but because of the COVID crisis, this infrastructure worldwide to the third world mostly, which is where rabies is the real problem, untreated, um, you know, is going to be more accessible than it would have been before the COVID crisis. Okay, and, and my next question, thank you for that answer. And my next question is, for example, if I know the, the macular degeneration for L, I mean, for, uh, uh, when it's related to age, the Americans uh, or the white Americans have more tendency to develop this condition. However, when it comes to the one related to diabetes, is mostly the, the largest uh, population that have a tendency to develop this condition are the Hispanic uh, community. And, uh, and, uh, and actually, I was reading that number one country that develops uh, diabetes around the world is Mexico. Uh, have you guys considered do the clinical trials there? We have actually looked at that issue. So I think actually India has the largest diabetes problem. Oh. Um, we've been speaking with an eye hospital in India. They have something like 80 million diabetic patients wow. go 130 in the next decade or something like that, he told us. And it's just enormous. But believe it or not, um, Asians in general including in, in India, don't get dry AMD and wet AMD like we do. There's something different genetically there and they get sort of a mixture of the two. It's very different. Um, we're now looking at whether or not that's the same thing in Latin America because we're thinking very, very seriously about doing trials in Colombia um, for wet AMD. But I, I don't know yet uh, what that answer is. We have the world's experts you know, from NEI looking at this for us, but um, it hasn't been generally acknowledged or talked about that different racial groups have different versions, right, actually, of 
these macular degenerative diseases. And so we will go where the science takes us, right, in terms of doing that. Um, and we'll see. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> Very yeah. interesting to know that information. Uh, well, in the case that you guys decide to do it in Colombia or Mexico, we can always collaborate. <laughs> I looked up all your stuff. I know what you guys do, and uh, I hear you. Uh-oh. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. It's been You've been amazing at uh, answering questions. It's refreshing to get a CEO willing to answer questions. Um, I really think it's a great story. I think it's a, I'm, I'm actually intrigued by the business model because I think it's somewhat unique from, from the ones we've looked at at least, at least this year when we started analyzing stocks. Uh, so we really appreciate it. Uh, open invitation, not just for yourself, but anyone else from the company that would like to come on and get interviewed. Maybe we can go like more in depth on each therapeutic condition, because I think there's a lot that we didn't get into with glioblastoma. Um, it just, as you can see, it's not enough time to cover everything you guys are yeah. doing. I mean, and this for a, such a small market cap company, I've never seen something like this, at least we've only been doing it this year. It won't always be such a small market cap company. That's right. That's right. Let's see. Let's see, guys. We need to make sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I got to stop interviewing CEOs because I get too excited and want to buy the shares oh, all the time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, Chris, Monica, any more questions? Oh, it was a pleasure, though. It was nice meeting you. Yeah, nice yeah. meeting you. Thank you for all your answers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you guys for watching and listening, and uh, we'll do more on curative biotechnologies. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.